Welcome to A Wild Life with Michael, the wildlife detective. My name is Jim Fisher, host of A Wild Life with Michael Burt. Michael is a conservationist. Michael, you also do pest control. You've got a company, Lycan360. You're an author. Um, you take things out of people's homes without killing them. You do all sorts of things. So just tell everyone real quick, um, briefly, who you are and what you do. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I am Michael uh, Michael, the wildlife detective. Um, I've got a pest control company, Lycan360, where we're your one-stop shop for any pest needs, and we like to do it as humane as possible. Um, we have an awesome guest today. Okay, awesome so guest. yeah, so we've got a guest here, uh, Dana Hahn, who owns Carmo Restaurant. Dana, um, Talk to me a little bit about your restaurant. I know you've got another restaurant in the French Quarter, uh, but tell me about Carmo and kind of your guys' mission and what you do. Sure, thanks. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, my name is Dana Hahn. I, I'm chef owner of uh, Carmo and Cafe Cour. Uh, Carmo, we've had now for coming up on 13 years. It is a uh, tropical restaurant, and I say that uh, more in the equatorial sense than eye patch and a parrot. Uh, we have. Uh, <laughs> food from around the world and and what we're really trying to do is to provide provide a uh, narrative of where that food comes from so instead of farm to table you might call it origins to table so farm to table is still part of that we still work with local producers and and uh, fishers but uh, you know we're really trying to uh, let people know a little bit about the food on the everyday plate and where it comes from. And that, that's a big part of our mission. That's true over at our smaller restaurant, which is called Cafe Cour over in the, uh, over in the French Quarter, little courtyard cafe over there. And uh, it's inside of the historic New Orleans Collection Museum. And uh, so uh, both restaurants, you know, we strive to uh, do a good deal, uh, have as kind of small, uh, or as limited of a footprint uh, ecologically as we can, uh, environmentally as we can. So that means, for example, you know we're we're nationally certified by the uh, by the uh, Green Restaurant Association and by some local organizations and Monterey Bay Aquarium, and so that's that's been uh, a, a you know part of both operations since day one. Very cool. So. You know Michael. Um, Michael, obviously, his mission kind of ties in with yours in terms of conservation. But how did you guys? How did you guys meet? What happened? It was a. It was a funny story. Um, so, what's really cool is both of us have a for-profit company, but we also have a nonprofit mission. So, like in 360 is pest control, but I like to think of it as we're dealing with urban wildlife conflict. So, um, you know, it's a big thing that everybody wrestles with, and we don't necessarily just want to go out there and kill everything we see. We want to teach people about why these animals are in their vicinity and try and maybe have them gain a little bit more respect for the animals around them because they were here first. And, um, yeah, and with Research Wild, we're trying to create curriculum and activities and experiences for uh, students and volunteers in nature-related uh, fields. 
uh, especially conservation. And so um, I was just out for lunch one day and I was eating and I, I read the menu and I was like, this is such a cool menu. And, um, and then I started reading because you have your mission statement right on the menu. And I was like, a mission statement on a menu at a restaurant? This I like is, it. I like it. So stop, stop real quick. Dana, what's the mission statement in a nutshell say? Well, essentially, it, it again has to do with um, creating as, as small of a footprint uh, as, as we can, uh, supporting our community in any way we can, being a part of that community, and engaging uh, local producers and uh, making commitments uh, to them on long-term basis. What's the reaction of the of the food community? You know, I, I know New Orleans. We're a little bit different town where we're based. Um, but what's, what's the reaction of, of, of locals when, when they hear what you're doing or even tourists who are coming in? Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's true that part of our audience, um, comes to Carmo because they know that, uh, they're going to get a fresh meal. They know that it's going to be, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, using good local ingredients and if not, and if not local ingredients, good ingredients. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's the first thing taste. And, and, uh, you know, we also have, a, I, I think a very friendly, uh, place when you come in. So that's, we want everybody to feel like they're local, whether they're visiting or not. Um, so that's part of it, but you know, the response is usually pretty good. We get a lot of, Oh, I feel so good after I yeah. eat there, which, uh, definitely I, I feel like, um, if I ever hear something that is, that is the reverse of that, then I'll have well, to reconsider. You know, it's, it, it, it's funny, like good food is supposed to make you feel well. If it's good for you, if it comes from a good place, you're supposed to feel better afterwards. That's right. Right. Good, good, you know, you know uh, flavor from good, fresh food is nutrition. And they're intrinsically tied one to the other. So if you go to a place and, and you're getting some some pretty uh, gourmet food that looks really good but kind of falls flat, chances are the ingredients aren't that great. Yeah. And um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of a no-brainer. But, you know, that's definitely part of who we are. So Michael, you, so it's that, it's that funny story. So this guy walks into a bar one day and and meets a kindred soul. Um, tell me, tell, tell us about the conversation that, that you guys had and kind of your vision for working together. Um, cause, uh, you know, research wild and, and the mission of your nonprofit, Dana really kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. There's a lot of differences and there's a lot of overlap. And um, it was funny because pre-COVID, I actually, that was my first time there. And you, you, you came and sat down and just talked with me and we, we ended up talking for a while. And then I was like, oh, okay, we should do something. And then uh, COVID happened and um, everything got derailed. And I was like, one day I got to revisit this. Um, but then in the between time, started up Lycan 360, we started doing pest control. So... Um, I was in there again and I started talking to you and we first started talking about how, you know, disconnected people are with um, the international struggles of conservation people, especially with you dealing with origins of the Amazon, the Amazon rainforest, which is a very famous thing. But why is it still so bad kind of thing? And uh, with me, you know, kind of tailoring things to. Uh, coastal environments working in Indonesia and trying to work with uh, in the Mississippi Delta um, 
we started talking about how these are global issues and they're all connected and how do we how do we connect people in an interesting and um, stakeholder kind of way who may not feel like they are a stakeholder in it but we all are a stakeholder in our environment because it's what allows us to live <laughs> so we just went on and on and started talking more and more and then i realized um i think i asked a question about how's your pest control because i always like throw that in there and um <laughs> you gotta get a you gotta get a plug for the business yeah you know i'm always asking gotta keep the lights on guys right. yeah and he said you know um we have we have a pest control company, but they just I just feel like they're doing you know the routine, and um, we want to make sure that our restaurant is you know pest free because we want everybody to be focused on the food, not you know our natural neighbors, our inhabitants, our wild neighbors, and so yeah, I went through and it's a very unique space. This restaurant, it's, it's amazing. Um, there, there's like vaulted ceilings on one side and there's a viewing screen in the back with chairs and there's communal seating, there's table seating, there's booth seating. It's, and it's you're, crazy. You're listening to a wildlife with Michael, the wildlife detective. His guest is Dana Hahn, owner of Carmo restaurant. My name is Jim Fisher host. Dana, is that purposeful? The, the design of the restaurant? I mean, it sounds having not been in there myself, it sounds Sounds different than than your typical restaurant. Yeah, I mean, I would say it is purposeful and and in a very uh, unintentional organic way. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we've been in the space again, coming up on 13 years. So um, you know, it has evolved, and we've tried to guide that evolution uh, so that it serves kind of the purpose that that we think we're there for, which is to to do some good and do well. And uh, so in terms of, of the, the physical space itself, you know, we've just happened that when we went in, it was pretty much an empty slate. Mm-hmm. So we, we were able to really guide, you know, the, uh, you know, construction projects and design projects so that there, there, was, there is some synergy with the business. And, and that, I think, is a pretty, uh, pretty clear connection. So. Dana, let me ask you this, um, and I always find this interesting, you know, when, when we're talking about conservation, the environment, kind of the world that we live in, oftentimes you'll get people like yourselves that care a lot, right? Other times, I'm just trying to, the nicest way to say, you get people that they, they just don't, right? It's just not a concern. It might not even think be out of malice. They just don't care, or they don't think that they affect the world around them that much. Do you, have you ever run into an instance where someone walks into your restaurant and they're moved, touched, whatever, by the experience that maybe their, their mind has been changed a little bit? Yeah. I mean, we've definitely had some, some folks in who, you know, first of all, note that it's, it's a different experience. You know, I, I would say that it's kind of almost evolved into kind of a tropical cultural center because, um, you know, we do have the different spaces. We have a library, we have a cinema, Okay. Uh, we have uh, uh, live music, you know, we're starting back up our film series, we've had readings, we've had theater, it, there's really been a lot of different events over the years. Um, so there's that side of it where people recognize that it's more than just a restaurant and bar. Uh, on the other side, I think that especially now with our this new project, which is called Origins Amazonia, um, now we're connecting more on 
the level that originally we had intended was, which was again to create this narrative that would touch people um, in a visceral way, mm-hmm. because the issues that we're dealing with is far beyond a situation where you can show somebody a documentary or that you can uh, tell somebody about an experience, about your travels, or or show them a a slideshow, or almost any of those sort of detached, one-off, you know, uh, 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 activities, they don't really engage somebody on a visceral level. Yeah. And so now we're talking about a situation specifically with, with regards to the Amazon and other rainforests around the world, where this is the low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of things that that we can do, you know, in terms of innovation, in terms of coming up with strategy, strategies to mitigate some of the climate change uh, that's already in place, the, the loops that have already <laughs> begun. But beyond that, there's the low-hanging fruit of what we're doing right now that we can stop doing this, this destructive and, and the degrades uh, the, the ecosystems that, that are uh, uh, that are around right now. Yeah. And one of the, those big things is to slow down the deforestation and toxic uh, of the of the rainforest, not just the Amazon, but other rainforests as well, and the toxification and or damming up of uh, of rivers. So we mm-hmm. have we have many different things that contribute to all these issues from uh, monoculture farming and ranching uh, to to mining. Uh, to massive uh, hydroelectric dam projects um, and and logging, of course. But um, all of these things together have gotten us to this point, which is a tipping point. And we're really talking about 10 to 15 years now. In fact, there are parts of the Amazon and surrounding areas that have already reached a tipping point. I just read an article by some rainforest uh, experts this week that said, you know what, it may be too late in these areas of the Amazon. I personally feel like that's not a reason to stop thinking about it. We always have to, to, to go into it with the perspective that we can do, you know, the impossible. Yeah. Otherwise, we can't do what we need to do. Do you feel like, um, and this, and it's funny that, you know, none, none of us in this room are like young men, right? Anymore. Maybe Michael a little bit, but we've all got a little bit of gray in our beard. And I remember being a younger kid in elementary school, hearing about, you know, the, the rainforest and that's when earth day really became a thing Mm -hmm. in the eighties. Um, and talking about that, but then we hear, you know, we jump ahead 30 years and now these, these problems are still problems that we're facing every day. Have we made, any progress on those fronts? Have things gotten better or are we still just not taking this problem seriously enough in your opinion? Well, it's like we're, we're, um, walking on, on a, you know, on a, uh, sort of a conveyor belt sometimes, you know, where, where it slows down and speeds up and we, and we may make a little bit of progress, but that backwards motion is, um, sometimes it's political movement and, sure. you know, that's a, definitely the case right now in Brazil, which retains about 60% of the area of the Amazon. Um, but you know, the other part of that is not just, uh, you know, politics It's also, um, all of the things that together we, we deem as important. So 
you know, one, one example that I like to use here in New Orleans, because we're constantly facing the threat of, you know, hurricanes, yeah. uh, some sort of, you know, catastrophic event. That hurts the like, bugs. That's Michael. Michael yeah, and something. The bugs. something. There's always something. The whole state's a swamp. It's um, a little bit of a mess. So when we're in those situations, and this was true of, the, of COVID, of the pandemic as well, which is that, um, you know, you notice with COVID that, what did we start to see all over that? We saw masks beginning to litter mm-hmm. the streets. Those masks are now floating around in our ocean. Coastal, yeah. yeah. I was just somewhere. down, I was just down, uh, just recently a couple miles off the coast of Louisiana. And, uh, guess what I saw in the water, you know, Mass. this is, yeah, this is, we've got to stop doing this, which is, Oh gosh, you know, our lives are in danger. We can, we can, start littering again well, it seems like we keep we're in that cycle too. but let me ask you this and and michael i'd love your opinion on this too um with covid it's funny you know we, we kind of saw that mother nature can get us right despite our best efforts you know we we found mother nature is more powerful than we are well, oh, yeah. whatever you think of covid that's what that's what happened have you found at all that people's perceptions um, regarding conservation and, and the world we live in has changed with COVID? Have they got, have they said finally, okay, maybe I should start taking this more seriously? Or have you seen more caution thrown to the wind because we faced our death a few years ago? Yeah. The, um, that's an interesting point because we've definitely, beca- we've definitely are living in a very dynamic world right now i mean and i guess maybe every generation says that uh, <laughs> i'm sure when world war ii was going down everybody was like uh, uh this nine, guy's falling that 9-11 thing was you know that was tough for nine, everybody right that yes was, that was for us before covid well and so it it's really about people's focus you know we're human beings we can't focus on everything all the time at once um especially when for a lot of people their focus isn't on the environment around them it's it's focused on paying bills it's focused on um their children it's focused on their jobs it's focused on um you know the wear and tear of everyday life and then you throw in you know these natural phenomena of larger storms viruses that are taking people out in large amounts and are super contagious and it's a lot um so it's it's really a balance of political ideologies in different parts of the world that we can't control and um, people's opinions and people's focus. So I believe that the people, when they care enough about something, can always overcome political strife. Um but just like with politics, we've seen it. It goes forward. It goes backwards. It goes. There's backlash. There's progress. There's backlash. There's progress. And I feel it's the same way with environmental issues. Um, I do feel like um, people are more aware just because there's more ways to get information. People aren't locked into watching a certain thing. They can. I mean, you Google anything nowadays. So information's out there, but. There's a there's a catch twenty two because there's also misinformation out there everywhere. So we humans like to create a lot of noise for ourselves, <laughs> and um, so to, to answer your question, I believe that because information is more available to people, the awareness is up. 
but we still face the issue of people's focus and politics that we can or can't control so it's it's a never-ending battle you know there's it's a never-ending battle and uh but it's never a reason to say it's not worth it there's nothing more important than our planet there's nothing more important than the environment around us because without it we will literally not exist so um yeah i went down to grand isle a few weeks ago and we'll have a different podcast about that but the same thing you know this tragic thing happened and 30 percent of the population moved away because there wasn't well if you can't live infrastructure there, you can't live there but you know it's still a city there's still people there they want to bring it back and it is a very important barrier island which helps with storm surge helps with all these things that floods us and creates more damage so the barrier island and the fact that it's the only inhabited barrier island in our area um it's important and the people there definitely don't want to lose hope and see themselves as a lost cause so it's we should always be caring and we should always be working and we should take all these things into consideration but it shouldn't be an excuse for us to do nothing we're listening to A Wild Life with Michael, the wildlife detective. This is his podcast. His guest is Dana Honda, owner of Carmo Restaurant. My name is Jim Fisher. Dana, um, I know you, you mentioned that there, there's a lot of things, I guess, geopolitically that could be happening that obviously could be better, right? And there's definitely a lot of things out of our control. What do you what do you think if you were like let's say we I would came into your restaurant and I was curious right and hopefully in this kind of environment I'm I'm sure people have questions right mm-hmm. and the one I always ask is what what can I like father of two you know homeowner trying to do the right thing I'm not trying to purposely junk up the environment what can I myself that I can control with my with my kids and with my family what can we do to try to to make this world a little bit better place. What advice would you give there? Right, that, that's that's a really good question. It's what I would call the action phase. So so to me, that's that's kind of where we get to after after we evaluate where we're at and where we're going and how we can uh, how we can change that trajectory. Because usually, with respect to these particular situations, where we're in a degrading uh, you know, uh, sort of, of trajectory. So, um, the one thing I want to pick up real quickly and I'll get to that question, but to, to pick up on something that Michael said, because I think it's really important, which is that, that, uh, you know, when I was really, uh, starting, uh, Origins Amazonia and, uh, the Biocultural Institute, one of the, one of the questions that I had was, well, there's all this information, People know all this stuff. There's all these documentaries, the scientists, there's there's news articles every week. There's all of this information. So why aren't people acting? Why aren't people doing something? Or, or sometimes why don't people even say that they care? I remember one of the first conversations I had, somebody who came in for lunch with a friend, and, she, and I was telling her a little bit about the project, and she said, you know, why should I care? We have all these problems with our environment yeah. here locally. Why should I care about the Amazon? Well, as it happens, 
many of these things are very, very uh, tightly connected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what happens here in terms of weather uh, is directly affected by what happens in the Amazon in, in terms of trans, uh, transpiration and uh, the, the feedback loops of moisture and, and, and of, of the, the weather that's created as a result of that. And the changes in that weather have direct effect on what comes into the Gulf and hits us. It also has a really direct effect on ocean currents, which perhaps even has more uh, effect on us uh, here in in southeast uh, Louisiana, so um, there are a lot of really uh, direct ways that that what happens there affects, affects us. us. Yeah. In fact, they, uh, the, you know there are estimates that some of the droughts uh, up in the northwest right now are at least partially as a result of deforestation in the Amazon. So I mean this this is this is connected stuff. There's no getting around that, and you know this is not me just conjecturing this is scientists have we've gotten to that point um so so why is it that if all of this stuff is demonstrably the case why can't we get people to act and i think well the question came back to me and the only thing i could think of was um well maybe it's because it's not that people don't care it's because they don't really know i think that's a lot of it yeah they, what they know is the sound bites. Sure. They might have seen a documentary. They might have heard Cause Celeb, something that, that one of our wonderful actors who went down to the Amazon and said something about the Amazon. That might stick in their head. But again, I've always felt from 35 years ago, first time I stepped foot in the Amazon, I always felt that if I could take each person down there for 15 yes. minutes even in the rainforest, and I, I think Michael's had this experience too, there would be no doubt that they would care and that they would act. So getting full circle to your question, yeah. how do we, what, what can we do? Um, and I think there's some really, there are some really simple things. One of them um, we're looking at this entire project and really, um, you know, at Carmo, um, we do the same thing. Biocultural Institute is all about that. But we look at it through through the, the, the lens of the food system. Okay. Because if there's anything that affects pretty much everything and everyone. We all got to eat. If we can fix our food system, we can fix everything. Because almost everything is tied to it. So... If we are uh, looking at what we're eating locally um, and making just even a cursory evaluation about what's on our plate every day, um, what is, uh, where, did, where did the beef come from? You know, where, where did uh, the potatoes come from? Is, uh, you know, is the company that's making this sugar um, contributing to uh, deforestation? Now, this whole thing about, you know, finding out, you know, which corporations are, are you know, contributing to these, these sorts of things. I think that that's, that's well and good, but it almost uh, is, is as important that we look to our own, you know, our own local uh, food system and say, mm -hmm. how can we be less dependent on monoculture 
you know, monoculture activities. So if, if we were producing Ex what we should can be I, producing. Can yeah. I stop you for yeah, a second? Yeah, yeah. Explain to people that don't know, yeah, sure, like sure, me, sure. what, what you said monoculture, what, what is it exactly? Yeah. So for example, you know, we've gotten to the place in, in the evolution of our food system in this country where, um, the vast majority of what is consumed is produced in factory farms and, and ranches. Um, and many of those are focused on a very um, low biodiversity footprint. So, okay. uh, so we might be looking at, you know, if you fly over the Amazon as a perfect example, there you'll see, you know, hundreds of miles of soybean fields okay. where, where, which is pretty much just one species where that, that replaced an area that had, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of species okay. uh, present. Um, so that, that that's just the basic basis okay, gotcha. of, yeah, gotcha. of, of biodiversity. Uh, so they're just, they're just doing one thing there. Yeah, and, and even even on, on a large-scale uh, food production, in a large-scale food production sense, we should be looking at more species. So we have other systems that our, our ancestors were using that were much more productive and also much more sustainable in terms of less input to the system, whether mm -hmm. it's chemical or whether it's just energy input um, and more nutrition nor more nutritious. So, you so know, it's better for the planet better and for it's the planet. better for us. It's more interesting. It's more flavorful. Uh, it's a lot better quality of life for farmers who are doing, you know, uh, even mid-size uh, to, to, to large-scale, um, you know, uh, production where they're, they're looking at uh, cover crops mm -hmm. and they're looking at uh, using different uh, species, growing different plants and combinations um, where they're using some maybe permaculture or no-till farming. Um, things that, that we can do that... I mean, just, just no-till by itself. If everybody was doing no-till, there would be a huge amount of carbon which would be sequestered in the ground. So each one of these things in itself has a potential to have a large-scale benefit. Okay. So, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Michael, did you want to add anything? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm all about food. I love food. So food is the quickest way to my heart, and it's a very effective way to teach people about the world around them um, as long as we do it. So um, one of my things is we research wild had interns going to Africa for a couple years before COVID. And um, before that, my first experience was Australia. Both of these countries have a large cattle, um, cattle industry. Um, but more more so in Africa than in Australia, there is already a natural abundance of large-bodied mammals that could be used instead. Africa has over 60 species of antelope that could be consumed. Um, but monoculture, cattle comes in, and, you know, it, it takes over... Um, the range that these antelopes would use. And so this battle between um, the destructive nature of what cattle does and just teaching people that, you know, bush meat isn't 
a bad thing. It's actually super healthy for you. And um, it's better for the environment. It's better all the way. Win, 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 win. Uh, maybe the only one who doesn't win is the specific animal <laughs> uh, <laughs> who gets harvested for our consumption. Uh, and th then the same thing with Indonesia. So um, with the Bantang, the wild cattle versus the domestic cattle, you know, the the risk of spreading diseases between the two is greater. And and then with the even more rare Javan rhinos that are out there, um, the, the cattle consume valuable resources for the rhinos that they need. So um, there we're getting into the urban wildlife conflict or the domestic wild and wildlife conflict where human beings have a need and they have a goal and an ambition and ego. <laughs> we all have an ego as human beings. Um, some are larger than others. But um, in that balance between the natural world and its need to exist and our need for it to exist, right? So these are the things that, you know, me and uh, Dana kind of connected on and is complimentary for our two nonprofits. And I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm Dana, if... um. If people want to find out more about what you're doing and your nonprofit, and obviously they, you know, uh, one good way is if you're in the New Orleans area, go eat at, you know, at, at Como Restaurant. Um, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to go down there now and check something out. Um, how do people find out more about you and, and your nonprofit and the work you're doing? Yeah, so a couple ways. Uh, we do have websites for for each organization. So we have uh, cafecarmo.com. We also have uh, bioculturalinstitute.org, and we have Origins Amazonia, A-M-A-Z-O-N-I-A.org. Um, and each one of those kind of, they're, they're all, there's a little bit of overlap because what we're doing in, in, at Carmo does have some synergy with, with what's happening uh, with Origins Amazon. For example, right now, you can go to Carmo and uh, experience a six-course Amazonian uh, tasting menu that's going on on Wednesday and Thursdays. Hmm. And uh, those are ingredients that we've, we've, uh, we're coming up on our third trip to the Amazon. When we go down, we meet with indigenous communities and work with them, supporting them on the projects that they tell us that they that they know that need to happen to help them restore and uh, regain their their lands and culture. So, uh, in in this case, for example, we're uh, uh, this just recently we we met with a group of people called the Jaruna down in the Shungu portion of the Amazon, and so a lot of the food we we made connections with them. So a lot of the ingredients for, for what folks will experience in these tasting menus comes directly from these people, from their agroforestry projects that help offset the monoculture type approach to farming and deforestation that, that this, that's uh, typical in the Amazon. So all of these things, again, we can, we can have some resonance with, with, with what we put on our plate and, um, and in this regard, especially all of the proceeds from these dinners are going back to that community to help with their infrastructure, agroforestry, and cultural uh, retention renewal projects. Um, and in fact, we're supporting some, seven of them uh, to go with us next week to Italy to the largest food gathering on earth, 
earth to tell their story to uh tens of thousands of people so um this this is uh it's all it's all kind of connected like i said but you can you can get some information from each of these uh different uh websites well look dana i I really appreciate your time today i think it's really insightful um especially to learn how food kind can kind of change the world around us it's definitely not something that i think a lot of us think about on a daily basis but it it would be a good step um thanks michael if you can remind everyone how to find out more about what research wild and you are doing as we wrap up episode number three yeah yeah um i mean where where to begin where to begin um it it's one thing just to pull back from the um the trend that i see that is amazing when you asked about that is that people are looking not just for restaurants or not just for this company or that they want to see something more that comes from those companies um so the things that dana's doing about teaching you where your food comes from where the ingredients come from the indigenous people who uh work with these unique different ways of um agriculture and with us you're with uh lichen 360 as a pest control company we're not just a pest control company we like to teach people about the wildlife and the environment around them so they're more aware and knowledgeable um and following that up with our research wild nonprofit. um so you can find out about lichen 360 any of the services we do with www.lichen360.com we also have a facebook page um and i have a facebook page and instagram for both research wild um and my children's book michael the wildlife detective which is kind of my outreach to the younger kids about the world around them, the environment, the wildlife. And you can also check out our website, research for Research Wild, www.rwild.org. Uh, find more about our internships, an exciting thing at the end of October, and we're going to do a bunch of podcasts about it. Um, myself and Amanda, our VP, are heading out to Indonesia to finalize all of the logistics for the new internship and volunteer program in Indonesia. Which... So you're saying we're, we're going to have a podcast from Indonesia? Oh, where I will be able to talk to you while you're in Indonesia. We'll do a podcast. Oh, we're going to set it up. That's going to be awesome. All right, guys. Well, look, I really appreciate both your time today. We'll put all the links for uh, both organizations in our show notes. And thank you so much. My name is Jim Fisher. This is a Fisher Audio Production. 